Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to America Adapts, the climate change podcast. On today's episode, we have Jonathan Parfray from Climate Resolve out of California. Please consider subscribing to the podcast on iTunes. Just go to iTunes and look up America Adapts. All right. Stick around. I hope you enjoy the episode. podcast. I am your host, Doug Parsons. It's great to have you back again. This week's podcast guest is Jonathan Parfray from Climate Resolve. Climate Resolve is a group out of California. I had a really fascinating conversation with Jonathan. I'm looking forward to sharing that with you. Just want to have a few updates on some things. As always, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. And please let your networks know about the podcast. The more, the merrier. Share uh, the iTunes information or the website, americadapts.org. I'm also on Twitter, and the handle is at USA Adapts. That's at USA Adapts. Please tweet me. I'll tweet back. I'll follow you. Follow me. Um, That's a nice Phil Collins song. And um, before we get started with Jonathan, just would like to say that I'm actually headed south to Florida. I was invited to to cover as media. I got press credentials for this Solving Climate Change Conference in Fort Lauderdale. It's about businesses talking about climate change. So I was very excited to get invited to that. And I'll be covering it as media. And I've invited Tristan Corton, a previous guest, and he's a reporter down in Florida, to help cover it with me. And so we're going to do a future podcast based on some of the interviews I get out of that conference. I'm looking forward to that, doing these little micro podcast interviews. And finally, next week, I'm very excited about this. I already recorded the conversation. I'm having Dr. Michael Mann on the podcast. I'll be publishing that next week. And as you all know, Michael Mann, as in hockey stick Michael Mann, it was a fantastic conversation. Was very excited to get Michael on the show. Great guy. He's wrote a book, The Madhouse Effect. We talked about that, but we talked about all sorts of things. Climate change. Guy has an amazing history with climate change. So with no further ado, let's get to my conversation with Jonathan Parfrey. Let's get this podcast party started. All right. Welcome back, everyone. This is America Daps, the climate change podcast. I'm your host, Doug Parsons. On today's episode, I have Jonathan Parfrey, executive director and founder of Climate Resolve, which is a Los Angeles-based climate change organization. Hi, Jonathan. How are you? Hey, Doug. Great to be here. Well, thanks for coming on. You're my first California guest. It's I've been very, you know, heavily East Coast, and so my apologies for not getting you California types on the show earlier. So, well, what starts in California sometimes finds its way to the rest of the nation. So, always happy to to participate. Oh, we are aware of that. You know, climate change, environmental issues. It's like. California does it first and we all have to follow. We get it. You know, but it's a good thing. So you know what? I want to jump right into this is that I'm going to ask you this question and I just hopefully you'll run with it, but you're dealing with LA and I think, I think it's like you're, it's not just out Los Angeles, but you know, Southern California and maybe it's even broader. But one of the things that sort of stood out for me is like, why is it so urgent for a city to tackle climate change? Oh, that's a really good question. You know, cities are where the rubber meets the road. It's where the climate effects will be felt. And so let's say that you uh, do the the parks and recreation. Will the trees have enough water? Uh, Will the grass have enough water? Let's say that you're the folks that run the harbors. You're going to be dealing with sea level rise. Or let's say that the county in Los Angeles 
uh, operates the beaches. They're going to have to look at uh, flooding from from storm events or from sea level rise. Public health departments, uh, they uh, are out in the community and trying to help people get through heat waves. And when there are additional heat waves, they're on the front line. When it comes to vector-borne disease, uh, again, it's the public health uh, department that is uh, sort of the front frontline responders or up in our mountains in Southern California where we, we have uh, beautiful San Gabriel Mountains, but there's been some very large wildfires. And who gets called in to work on those wildfires? These are, again, the local fire departments that that are put to use. And so when it comes to climate change, yes, it is a global issue, but where climate change is felt and where it must adapt is at the local level. I certainly support that. But let's say you have someone from the public sort of saying, okay, no matter what I do here at the city level, is it really going to make a difference on global emissions? And so you must have an answer for that. Well, yes. And, and if everyone had that attitude, then we would do nothing <laughs> on uh, global emissions. And here in California, I, I'm really excited by the steps that the, the state is taking. And of course, with the full support of cities like Los Angeles and, and L.A. County, it's to help the state get to 80 percent below 1990 emissions by the year 2050. And we've passed a law here in the state that gets us to 1990 levels by the year 2020 and wow. then to 40 percent below 1990 levels by the year 2030. And so we have policies in our state that say that we're going to get 50 percent of our electricity from renewable uh, sources. And that date of 2030, if you haven't looked at a calendar, that's like 13 years away. Yeah. 13 years and change. And so what we're trying to do in California is set a standard where we can show that we can have a robust economy, that we are reducing our greenhouse gas emissions. We are preparing for the impacts of climate change. And we're doing this in a way where we're including the public so that California is uh, actually embracing the future. We are not afraid. We are trying to set a standard by which others can see our success. And if they choose to follow, they may also experience that same degree of success. Well, I want to learn a little bit more about Climate Resolve. So it's not actually that old of an organization. I think 2010 is when you founded it. And so let me just want to read this really quickly is that it's dedicated to creating real practical solutions to meet the climate challenge while building a better city for An oh God, Angelino. Angelinos. So that's kind of a unique way to approach climate change. And so a lot of people approach it like you're hunkering down, you're going to make this resilient, but you actually are like pushing toward, well, we can actually make the city better. I mean, that, I guess that was a conscious decision. Yeah, it, it's our view that the steps you need to take to make a city more resilient or to do a better job in reducing your your carbon pollution uh, actually has amazing co-benefits where people's lives are dramatically enhanced. And let me just give you just two examples. So one of them would be that of reducing the urban heat island effect. So just the way that we've built our cities with all of the asphalt roads, with the parking lots and playgrounds, we've created this place that is a sink for solar radiation. 
that adds anywhere from 5 to 12 degrees Fahrenheit just to the background temperature of a city. Now, what we passed in Los Angeles is a change in the building code where we said we are going to take on uh, urban heat island. And the first step is to mandate that all new and refurbished rooftops have to use cool roofs. And so that's high albedo material so that it, it sheds the solar radiation rather than absorbing it. And not only is it mandatory, but we also got an incentive out of the city of LA's municipally run utility to offset any incremental costs above a traditional roofing material. And so it's a win-win situation. There have been over 10,000 roofs in the last two years that have been converted to cool roofs. Now, what is, what did cool roofs do? First of all, it gives the person who's living in the home an immediate feedback that they are feeling better, that their home is more livable. It's cooler. The second thing is that they're saving money on their utility bill, anywhere from 10 to 12%. It means that your AC isn't running as much or your refrigerator doesn't have to labor as much to, to cool down the jello. And so uh, there's that immediate feedback mechanism financially and and physically. But even more than that, it helps the population then during big heat waves and the heat waves of the future, it helps the public become more resilient. And then the last feature is because some of our grid is still dependent on fossil fuel, there's a little bit of coal, a little bit of natural gas left in there, that by reducing our energy use, we're generating that much less in the form of greenhouse gas uh, emissions. So we thought that cool roofs is this thing where it's a win, win, win across the board. And the city of L.A. followed along. And now we're hoping to set a standard for the entire uh, state of California uh, where it is appropriate. So, again, it's something that people can do locally that has an immediate feedback mechanism that enhances their lives, saves them money, and it it does the right thing both on adaptation and on mitigating greenhouse gas emissions. Win, win, win. Now, the other thing that we've been supporting is public transportation and advancing that in Southern California. And that reduces greenhouse gas emissions tremendously because the lion's share, over 50% of Greenhouse gas emissions in the state of California derive from either people driving their cars or other forms of transportation, plus the energy it takes to develop those fuels in the first place. So all the refineries that are here in California, altogether, that's over 50 percent of our GHG emissions. And so it's our view that we have to give people viable alternatives to getting in the car. They can take their bike to work. They can walk to work. They can have public transportation. And so there's also all those co-benefits where if you get on a bike, if you walk into public on public transportation, there are cardiovascular benefits that are substantial. They're not small. They could add years onto to someone's life and, and help that person uh, have better health. But then What we also find is exciting is that it adds in the connectedness of the region. And and the one thing that L.A., it's famous for its its 
freeways, it's, it's smog, it's sprawl. But the thing that we're trying to achieve through our Envirometro coalition, and this is something our organization pulled together, is to give people real options to reduce greenhouse gas emissions that they can do personally in their own lives. But the thing about policy is that you set the conditions so that people have options to do the right thing. I'm kind of tired of the finger wagging that says people should turn off lights and they put solar on the roof, but there's no social benefit to doing any of those things. So what we believe in is providing the benefits for individuals through advancing social policy. And I think we're getting there with both the Cool Roofs campaign as well as for the public transportation campaign. I'm curious, and I think a lot of listeners would be too, is that you are in California where you get to do a lot of these things. And I'm just curious, like, what is really the environment with the policymakers that you're proposing these things? Like, I spend a lot of time in the Deep South. So you talk about climate change and you say, oh, I want to do something. And then the other side's like, climate change doesn't even exist. But in L.A., I'm assuming that there's a sort of buy-in to it. But what are the sort of political challenges? Is it just cost? I mean, are there people that are in opposition for any number of reasons? You know, I, I do believe we're very fortunate in California because uh, we're able to talk about climate change as an issue and we don't have to shy away from that. As a matter of fact, you know, the when there's reports are issued by climate scientists, our local newspapers and broadcast media cover those stories and they actually do a really good job of it. So I think our public is aware of what the scientific community is saying. They're aware of what the, the folks in Sacramento and at City Hall are saying about climate change. And they recognize that the quality of life that they love to experience in California is frankly threatened by climate change. And so there is a pretty wide uh, public uh, adoption of the notion of climate change. So, you know, Doug, I, I don't know what to tell you in terms of, you know, how you talk to folks in the South. I, I, I my recommendation would be to appeal to people's understanding of their own experience, uh, what they've seen over the course of the last few decades and how things have changed and to also reflect on a legacy and what kind of world we want to give our kids. And so even under the framework of risk, you know, so let's say you don't believe in climate change, but there's that possibility. It's true. Uh, what are the to hedge your bet to have a hedge? What do you want to invest in so that you can leave your kids and your grandchildren a, a better world? Yeah, I think that's probably getting some traction here is the idea of just protecting these landscapes and legacy and cultural resources. And so there's incremental progress in that respect. Yeah. Part of your model with Climate Resolve is that, you know, a lot of the issues you're dealing with are, are about energy and about getting emissions down. But you do talk about and this podcast is all about adapting to climate change. And so on the flip side, you also talk about how L.A. is going to adapt to climate change. I just wondering if you could speak to that. What are some of the programs and how do you sort of talk about the uh, adaptation side of things? Sure. Well, in, in Southern California, we we are blessed, actually, with a wonderful climate. Yes. <laughs> and the, the reason why people 
have moved to Southern California is because in the middle of December, it could be, you know, 85, 90 degrees on any given day. So there are some really uh, exciting, you know, public responses to, to climate. People really do, do love the climate here. And so you're starting from a place where people are already open to the concept of wanting to preserve the very favorable climate that we already have here in Southern California. So our programs that we have, one is to address urban heat island. We find that if people are able to curb that additional warming, we could actually make LA of the future, even with the additional warming from climate change, a, a cooler city. We can make it a cooler place. And so we have not only a project on, on roofs, which has been very successful, we also have a project uh, with the Bureau of Street Services in the city of Los Angeles, where there are a number of pilots testing different material on city streets to see how they they hold up under the wear and tear of use, to see if they meet certain standards and then could be more uh, widely adopted. That's a that's a very uh, important factor is also uh, switching out the materials that we use in streets. And right now, the city of L.A. owns two asphalt factories. And so mm. the city really likes asphalt. So knowing that, what we're looking at is adding material to the last layer of that asphalt, which is the slurry. And there's titanium dioxide materials that would, rather than absorbing sunlight, would actually reflect it back into space. And it would actually uh, cool down certain neighborhoods. So uh, cool streets in conjunction with cool roofs would uh, really do something to prepare and to protect uh, people from the heat waves of the future. So that's one thing. A second area that we think is really important in Southern California is water supply. There are three major aqueducts that bring water into Southern California. The most famous one is the LA Aqueduct that was made famous by the film Chinatown, where the city of LA imports water from the Eastern Sierra and it led to a lot of growth and development in Southern California. And then there's also the Colorado River aquifer, as well as the uh, California aqueduct that comes over the Tehachapi Mountains into Southern California. And all three of these major aqueducts, the way Southern California gets the lion's share of its water, all three of these sources are actually under threat from climate change because the a way in which precipitation is is shifting is that we might get the same amount of precip, but it's going to come down wet as rain rather than dry as snow. And so the runoff from the Sierra Nevada mountains uh, could be immediate. Uh, another thing, that the climate scientists have identified having to do with snowpack and rainfall is that when the growing season elongates, so it's no longer that 
in the Sierras or the Rocky Mountains that, you know, basically the, the plants stop growing, uh, in November and only come back online in, uh, in April. Uh, they're finding that it's a much shorter growing season. And because of, I mean, much shorter uh, period of hibernation. And because of that, the plants are absorbing water during that time. And through its leaves, there's transpiration. And because of that, there is now a lot of water that would otherwise be going into the streams and rivers that feed into these aquifers is now being absorbed by plants and then through uh, transpiration uh, put into the atmosphere. And it's no longer available as, as fresh water. And so the water agencies are seeing less water now available uh, through imported sources. And they attribute that to more evaporation, more evapotranspiration, and the fact that we don't have sufficient areas of water containment and storage so that the water is just flowing out into the currently the California Delta and then out into the ocean uh, rather than being sufficiently captured and used for by the by businesses and by uh, the people of California. And so water supply is a very, very important uh, subject for Southern California. And there are efforts now to try to find ways of recycling more water. There are efforts underway of trying to conserve more water. There are efforts underway of trying to go upstream to secure the uh, forests and in mountains and to try to uh, help in containing and aiding into the forest health itself so that when it does rain, uh, some of that water is captured and slowly released over the course of months rather than just immediately uh, sent downstream and out into the ocean. So there are a lot of things that uh, can be done in terms of water supply, and this is a huge priority for us as well. Those are two of the big issues on adaptation that um, we find to be just essential for the L.A. of the future. Florida, you can't really start any climate change conversation without talking about sea level rise. And I know you have a big coastline, but do you, is that a major issue? Because, I mean, you have a rocky coast, but I'm just, I guess maybe in some of the deltas, but is that like a really major issue for you? Oh, yeah. Sea level rise is a major issue for California. And curiously, there are a few areas in Los Angeles County that are at risk. But I have to tell you, it's other parts of California that are much more at risk than L.A. So the San Diego airport is at at sea level today. Hmm. In fact, even today, they have to operate pumps to have the runway not be flooded from the saltwater intrusion from the ocean during certain high tide events. That's happening today in San Diego. The San Francisco airport is at sea level. San Jose airport is at sea level. Oakland airport is at sea level. And there are some really, during uh, king tide events, the city of San Francisco are seeing waves wash up onto the Embarcadero, even today. And that's without the 
additional inches or feet of uh, from sea level rise. Now, in Southern California, our, our airport here, uh, LAX, is about 120 feet above sea level. So it, it's not under, it's not of a most urgent concern. However, we have a lot of coastline where we have highways that are located there. We have our water, main water treatment plant, the Hyperion water treatment plant is essentially at sea level. And so there is a very big concern um, about sea level rise, but I don't think it's as urgent in L.A. as it is in other parts of the state. I haven't heard about L.A. talking about desalinization, but is that um, like an, something that you're really considering in the future? We, we are concerned about water supply, and there are a number of sources that we can go to that are far less expensive and energy intensive as desalination. So I'm not going to say desalination is off the list, but frankly, it's at the bottom of the list. And so to conserve water and swap out certain kinds of landscape is much less expensive. And it's something that actually I think would aid in the resilience of, of people in Southern California. There's good studies that if we had native plants rather than even grass, LA would be cooler at night when people could recover from heat waves than they are currently. So that's something that, that we're very supportive of. Uh, recycled water, you know, basically taking water that comes out of, uh, from sewage treatment and pushing that through, uh, reverse osmosis is much less energy intensive than it would be to do the same of running salt water through reverse osmosis. And capturing rainwater in Southern California when it does rain also is far less expensive uh, than going to desalination. So there might be some areas that are so cut off from the rest of the state that they uh, don't have these multiple sources that they can turn to in terms of getting state water into their communities, like Santa Barbara is one of those, where they might need to turn to desalination to supplement some of their water supply. But for Los Angeles, uh, it frankly is not being seriously considered. Well, that's encouraging. I would imagine just the idea of maladaptation that some cities will take that shortcut and, you know, forgetting the carbon footprint of desalinization that they'll do it anyway. And it's, it's, it's good that LA isn't really jumping on that. So you, you brought the word maladaptation. I think it's such an important word. So we were fighting a piece of maladaptation here in Southern California. Um, our local utility, the Department of Water and Power, uh, for Los Angeles, uh, was offering an incentive for people to take out their grass and instead put in what's called artificial turf, which is yeah. a petroleum product, which has an, a, in terms of the, the heat index of artificial turf, it's actually even higher than asphalt. That stuff just absorbs yeah. a heat like anything. And it also kills any microbial life that might be storing CO2 in those soils. And so, again, then it would release that CO2 into the atmosphere. We find that to be an active maladaptation is the, um, is 
is artificial turf. So we, we prefer uh, almost any other option before you get to that option. Now, some friends of mine who play uh, soccer, they really like artificial turf because hmm. it stays green the whole year and has a nice sponging material that they like. And they don't get burns when they wipe out or anything. I think they do, but I think that's just a trade-off, yeah. Looking at your bio, you've obviously been involved with just about everything in, in Los Angeles. It really is quite amazing. You know, I was looking at you, – you do some blog posting at Climate Resolve, and I'm just curious. It really is an eclectic group of blog posts, and I'm just curious what your process is for picking these. You know, you celebrate Los Angeles, or you're talking about these complicated policy issues, and it. I think you – I mean – they might not be a long piece, but they're really a, a great diverse set of, of uh, blog posts. So I'm just, how, how do you go about writing those? <laughs> I, I have to be honest with you, Doug. It's, it's, there is no grand plan okay. or design. It's, uh, it's sort of, you know, there's some ideas that we've been noodling on here in our organization over the course of years. And then, uh, the moment seems ripe and, uh, we, we produce something. So sometimes those little blog posts get a very strong response and people really enjoy, you know, reading them. And other times I totally strike out. Well, it's probably one of the things you're riding your bike and you're just like, okay, I got an idea. So that some of the best ideas come that way. I, I think so. It's true. I mean, one, one idea that, uh, I had a few years ago, which hasn't been republished was, the concept of how nomenclature shifts with climate change and how it actually will affect language. And so like the example I like to use is that we used to describe something moving slow as something that's moving at a glacial speed. But uh, as we all know that with the glaciers melting so right, quickly, right. something that's moving at a glacial speed, that could now be something fast. Uh, it depends. Well, and speaking of your blog post, I was looking at some of your other programs and to me, at least on paper, it must be one of your most satisfying programs is you're connecting with others programs where it seems like you, you go out in the community, you have your conferences and events. And tell me a little bit more about that. Sure. We, we happen to be the organizer of the state of California's climate change symposium that that brings, you know, the uh, state agencies and concerned members of the public up to speed on the state of climate science as it uh, may affect California. And so we're, we're very excited about that work. Another campaign that we really love is something called Path to Positive Los Angeles. And again, the sociological data is unequivocal on this. If you come out with the depressing stuff and woe is me and everything's going to hell, you're, you've lost your audience. They're, they're just not going to be paying attention to that. And a very small minority actually responds to the, the dire messages. And so one of the messages that we find that really works and it has the added virtue of, of being true is that, is that we can make a difference and that things can change and we can be part of a solution on climate change. And so we've been part of that on the path to positive campaign. And part of that is that we have an annual event that we call climate day LA and the last one had 600 folks. We're going to try to double that this year. And the point of climate day LA is to celebrate the solutions uh, that are out there and what people are doing in Southern California to help move the, the needle on climate change. And, and I mean, frankly, there are a lot of things that we can point to. It's that uh, we usually have too much information rather than too little. And we find that very exciting. 
Well, one of the questions I had was related to you being in L.A. and there's Hollywood there and you have a unique demographic, very popular demographic. And so are you able to kind of bring them into your your mission work? Like, And I mean, you know, Hollywood stars, actors, celebrities and. Yeah, I'll be frank with you. I, I, I'm, I'm not impressed with Hollywood. Uh, we, we, we're a little bit anti Hollywood here because LA is a really big town. And if, if you just looked at the economic activity of Hollywood, it's actually a very thin percent of the overall economic activity of the region. And so we actually like to look at the rest of the city. And so, yes, we acknowledge that people love to see the Leonardo DiCaprio uh, documentaries and the speechifying at the Oscars. And and I think that's all just very wonderful. But I don't think it has staying power. And what we want to do is see an institutional embrace of uh, climate solutions. We want to see people excited and proud. And it's like it's part of their their cultural identity is part of their civic identity that they're part of the solutions to meet this enormous problem. So I don't think Hollywood helps too much in that regard. And they might even get in the way. Well, no, I think that's probably a good observation that it could be a fleeting attention. You, you look at some of the things that they do, but then, you know, what you're doing more on the ground work is going to have that lasting impact. So. I, I can appreciate that. You know, a couple more questions for you, and I, I wanted to talk about you being in L.A. too, is that, you know, the conservation movement in general has, you know, been pretty ethnically not diverse. And I'm just wondering, are how are you able at Climate Resolve? Is this something you feel like you guys do well or do you want to do better? I mean, it's a, it's a really diverse area, and are you able to take advantage of that in, in the work that you're doing? It's exciting to be – in Southern California, where it is so ethnically diverse. And if you look at the leaders currently of climate action in the state of California, it's people of color. And so the speaker of the house is a guy, uh, Anthony Rendon, who is a real leader when it comes to uh, climate change. I mean, I the, the Senate yeah. president is a guy, Kevin DeLeon, who has pushed through some amazing legislation okay. on climate change. The, the hero of this last legislative session is a guy, Eduardo Garcia, who right. found a way yeah, to get California to certify right. that it'll go to 40% below 1990 levels by the year 2030. Um, and if it wasn't for Eduardo Garcia, or Kevin DeLeon, or yeah, Anthony Rendon, we would not have uh, made yeah. these huge advances. Right. So it's yeah. not as if, I'll be frank with you, it's not as if there's a special effort to reach out to African Americans, Asian Americans, and Latino communities. Where here, it's simply second nature, it's what we do. Well, my previous guest on the podcast is a professor at Harvard, and you'd mentioned the term earlier, climate gentrification. And I actually, you know, haven't really heard that before, and I found it really interesting. And like you said, it'd probably be a unique challenge for, you know, the different communities out there. But it is something that's probably going to grow as an issue in the coming year. So just interesting how these different issues pop up. Yep. Well, um, and I'm curious, just a couple more questions. And so the Paris Agreement was this big deal, and you wrote about it. Did 
Do you have any particular strategy at Climate Resolve to communicate that at a more local level, or is it just you know generally newsletters and such? I'm just it's it was such a big moment, and I'm I was curious how local groups really kind of wanted to get that message out. Well, you know, we wanted the people at our at our Climate Day LA in 2015. We wanted which took place about two weeks before the the, the Paris meeting. We wanted to make sure that people felt as if they had a say. And we're influencing these global events. And so the way that we organized uh, the event is that we issued a, a declaration from the people of Los Angeles to the negotiators of the Paris Accord. And that declaration was then given to state legislators, to our mayor, uh, Eric Garcetti, who was representing the city at the, the Paris Agreements and others. So that there was a sense that we wanted to make sure that the folks in L.A. felt that they were connected to the the Paris Agreement. Now, I have to tell you, I think California, this is our theory of change. If California succeeds in reducing greenhouse gas emissions, if California succeeds in preparing for the impacts of climate change, and if California's economy remains robust and provides opportunity. I think that is the greatest lever. And yes, we want there to be nations signing on to the Paris Agreement, but I feel that it's exciting if we get our act together. I just think that if California shows it succeeds in that event, that for me is the vehicle for influencing things internationally. And that's what we're dedicated. I'd like to give you sort of a a, a chance to, you know, the listeners out there, there's people that, you know, in local government that are listening and is what kind of major recommendations, you know, two or three recommendations could you give to folks? I mean, you guys are a pretty mature organization doing some really cutting edge stuff, but if people are out there wanting to do something, what, what sort of advice would you give them? Well, I would say focus on climate adaptation but focus on their solutions and do this locally. It then it gives people a sense that they actually have some agency when it comes to climate change. I think when we talk about the global context, we talk about global impacts, we talk even about global solutions. People can't wrap their head around that. It's just too big. But if you help people understand that, what they're experiencing could be a necessarily an analog to what the world is experiencing and the, the changes that are taking place and that they actually have the ability to make a difference. I think that is uh, what could spread like wildfire. And what that's what creates a movement is that when people feel part of something. And I think I have to criticize our environmental movement hasn't necessarily taken that psychology into account. Uh, we keep pushing for these big ideas, and they are important, and they are big ideas, and I agree with everything that they say, but I think we sometimes leave out what people feel they can actually do and get done. And so by focusing on adaptation, helping people get things done, like securing their water supply, like reducing the incidence of wildfire, like cooling down their cities, being able to deal with uh, sea level rise in ways that uh, might add to the natural environment as well. To take those steps 
will then give people confidence that they can do the, those other things that reduce greenhouse gas emissions and will limit the problems of the future. So I say it's a global issue, but start locally. No, I love that message, and I think some of the most innovative, interesting work is happening at the local level, and I just keep learning about it each week, so I appreciate that message. This has been a fantastic conversation, Jonathan. I really appreciate your time and the, the work that you're doing there, and once again, we'll be jealous of what California is doing, but thanks for coming on the show. Uh, real pleasure. Nice to meet you, Doug. Uh, thanks, everyone. Until next time, this is America Daps, a climate change podcast. Okay, folks, that's a wrap for this week's episode of America Daps, the Climate Change Podcast. Thanks so much to Jonathan Parfrey of Climate Resolve. Climate Resolve is in California, and California is always doing cutting-edge stuff. We're always jealous of what California is doing, and on climate change, they're just starting to become light years ahead of the rest of the country. We have a lot to learn from them, and I was thrilled to get Jonathan on to talk about some of the cool things that they're doing in the Los Angeles area. Thank you so much, Jonathan, for that. Also, don't forget to check out the website for the podcast. It's americadaps.org, and please consider subscribing on iTunes. You know, iTunes actually doesn't make it that easy. If people don't know, it's not that intuitive, but on your phone – there's a purple app icon and there's a big I. And if you click that one, that should be your iTunes podcast app. And you go into that and search for America Daps and hit subscribe. That would be great. Much appreciated. And if you are inspired, please consider writing a review for the show. That's always good for people searching for climate change podcasts and such that shows up that way. And please consider um, giving me some feedback on the show or if you have a great idea for guest. I, I get these all the time and I love getting emails, the random email each week. I always get something exciting and new and on the website it has my email, but it is americadaps at gmail.com. And don't forget next week, I've already recorded this as I mentioned earlier, but Dr. Michael Mann, the famous hockey stick researcher, is going to be on. I, I already recorded. It was an amazing conversation. I was pinching myself the whole time that I was talking to Michael Mann. He's a really great guy and he had some really cool stories to tell. So tune in again next week. Don't forget to subscribe because it'll just end up in your inbox and you won't miss it at all. And finally, if you want to consider supporting the show, there's an option for that on the website too. Anything would be appreciated. Support your local podcast, America Daps. And on that note, I just just want to thank all of you for listening in. You guys are all great. We can continue to grow, and I'm always hearing about new guests that are interested in coming on. And so if you have great ideas, please please let me know. But, um, yeah, just keep listening in. This is America Adapts, 